So my, when my family first moved here to St. Louis, we lived in a rent house that was just across the street from Carondelet Park, and it was like this really nice house, okay? This is this really nice house that one of the network of churches that we're a part of owned, and so they kindly allow, allowed us to move into this place. And look, it had lots of space, all right? So we're coming from a little small house from where we used to live that it felt like you were just kind of tight and crammed. It was like two bed, one bath house for like five people and we're all crammed into this house. So we, we come into this new house here in St. Louis and it's like you're getting out of the car and you're stretching. It's like you have all this space, you know what I'm saying? And one of the places that was, it, it was like a revelation for our family was the closet sizes. All right. So like we came from the, this house is built in like the forties and it's like this tiny, small little closet. Our kids walked into their room. They have a walk-in closet. It's like they went to Disney World. Like, they're just walking around like eyes are in awe of, like, how much space. And so naturally, it becomes a play place for our kids, right? So they find this little nook. They find this little cranny, and it's like this enchanted cave that they go and start playing in. Now, one of the things about this, this closet is it had an air vent that was in the ground. And unbeknownst to us, the air vent wasn't secured, okay? So we don't know this. Our kids are playing in their walk-in closet, this enchanted forest that they've created out of the closet. And my wife is downstairs, Sherish is downstairs. Um, there's no like bedrooms on this floor. It's just completely like an open space. And so she's down there doing her thing. And then all of a sudden she hears this clunk, clunk, clunk that's going on in the walls. She's like, what is going on? So she rushed up the stairs. And so she finds our second child, Sutton, who has discovered that the air vent is not secured. And he's taken out the air vent. And just before this, my, my kids have been opening up boxes and they found a lot of my like sports memorabilia from whenever I was a little kid. And so my Sutton has this little baseball, this Cardinals baseball that he has that he, he's treasured and he's enjoyed. And he decides to lift up the air vent and see if the ball will fit. All right, now this isn't the first occasion that this has happened with our set, and so it wasn't a surprise to us. We'd also found rocks in our drain in a bathtub back in the house that we had moved from. So this is not a new occurrence, but this is something new for this house. So we immediately are like, hey, like he's distraught. This is new ball that he has. He, he's excited about it. He can't get it back. It's like gone, and we're trying to, to console him. It's like, sorry, buddy. Like, I know this is awful, but hey, you can't put things down holes and expect that you're going to get them back, all right? This, this is just kind of how life works. This is how homes work. And so um, we are in this house for six months, and we end up buying our own house here in St. Louis. And so um, as every good renter does, I didn't follow anything that was on the contract, so I'm making sure that I'm getting all the things done around the house so I, we can get our security deposit back, and so I'm doing the mad dash, one of those being changing the air filter. So um, I'm, going, I'm down in the basement, I'm changing out the air filter, I open up the furnace, and what do I find? I find a baseball, right? I find the baseball, and so I grab the baseball, I run up the stairs from the basement, then I go another flight of stairs upstairs. I have to stop and take a break because I'm out of breath. But as soon as I catch my breath, I go into the room and I go to Sutton. I'm like, Sutton, guess what daddy found? He's like, I don't know. And so I have the ball behind my back and I bring it out. And he's like, it's like this massive celebration. I won't do it right now because I don't want to hurt your ears. But this like shrieks and shrills are going across the room because this ball has been found and has been brought back to Sutton. And he's freaking out and we're all having a big party and everything is awesome. 
All right, so in this whole scenario, what has happened? What's happened? Like, yes, there's joy, there's elation, there's excitement, there's something that's been lost and has been found. All of these things are true, but all of these things are a response to what has actually happened. It's restoration. All right, so here's the definition of restoration. If you were to go and Google what is restoration, this is going to be the very first definition that pops up. You can pull out your phone. You can test me on this. I promise you it's going to be the very first definition that you will find on there. Okay, here's what it says. Restoration is the action of returning something to a former owner, place, or condition. See, Sutton's ball had been lost and found and returned to its rightful owner. He's the owner of this ball. He's excited. There's joy. There's gratitude. There's hope. These, all these responses, but they're all the outcome of what has really actually happened in its restoration. And as we look at tonight's passage, this idea of restoration is what we find to be the theme of the text of our passage This theme began in the passage that we looked at last week. We looked at verses 1 through 14. We saw that Paul gave this warning to the Philippians to look out. There's these dogs, there's these mutilators of the flesh that are coming. They're going to teach things that are not true about the gospel. And he's saying, look out for these people. And then he also gives them a goal. Says, I, I've counted all things at a loss. I want to know Jesus. All, anything is up for grabs in my life as long as I get to know this Jesus. I want to know this Jesus. And then he gives us a call where we see this theme begin. He says, I'll forget what, I forget, I forget everything that's behind me. We see this in verse 14. It should be up on the screen. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. So what is ahead? What is Paul referring to here? He's referring to Christ's return. He's referring to heaven come to earth. He's referring to all things being made new. He's reaching forward. God's creation is fully restored, including our own bodies. He's reaching forward for this to what's ahead. He's talking about this restoration, this theme. So here's what I want us to do tonight, all right? We're going to follow this theme throughout the passage. And as we do, we're going to see there's three movements, all right? And the first one is this. Restoration is not something that we just wait for, but we seek it out now. We are to live with the end in mind, which is the ultimate restoration of all things. And the last one is that we're to stand firm, stand firm in order to realize restoration. All right, so we're going to look at that first movement. We find it in verses 15 through 17. So don't wait for it. You seek it out now. All right, so here's, the, here's where I'm getting this. I'm going to read the passage again, and then we'll, we'll dive into it. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differ- differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained Now look at this, join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have 
in us, all right? So here's what's going on, all right? The first two verses, Paul is reiterating some things that he's already told us about, all right? So he says, let us all who are mature think this way. He's talking about forgetting what's behind and reaching towards what, uh, what is ahead. Anybody that's mature, this is the, the posture that we're to have in life. This is what we do. This is how we move forward in the Christian faith. He says, if you think differently, God will reveal this to you. If you hold a different position regarding all the things that Paul has talked about, about like the resumes and all the things that you can try to build up for God, that these things are worthless. And if you don't think this, then wrestle with God about it and he'll reveal the truth to you. That's what Paul is saying here. Then he says, live up to the truth we have attained. He's restating what we found in chapter one, that we are to live a life worthy of the gospel. We talked about this being a life that is lived differently. We are to have lives that look differently because of a walking in obedience out of love for what God has done for us. And then we also talked about this is a life that's lived from approval, not for approval. That we're not living in order to attain approval from God, but we live from approval because of what Jesus has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection. That's, that's, this is what Paul's reiterating in those first two verses. All right, and then Paul invites us in verse 17, as well as the Philippians, to imitate him and pay careful attention to those who follow his example. All right, so is Paul being conceited here? Is Paul saying, like, look how big and bad of a Christian I am, and so follow me. Like, I've got it all figured out. Come and follow me. No, that's not what Paul is doing here. Instead, he's saying this hope of restoration, this hope that I've forgotten everything that's in, the, in my past, and now it's the very thing that I'm reaching forward to that, that lies ahead of me. I'm living for this now. This is like my one aim in life. This is what all of my life is geared towards now is I want to go after this with everything that I have, this restoration that only Christ can give me. This is what I want. Everything, is, everything else in my life is up for grabs, but this one thing, this is not. This is what I'm going for. We find this in verses 10 through 11, right? So he says, I, I want to know him. I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Restoration. So look, Paul wants to know a savior. Yes, absolutely. We, we talked about that last week. But this includes the restoration that comes from Christ alone. The power of the resurrection. He wants to know, he wants to experience this restoration. This isn't something Paul's just sitting around and waiting for in his life, this hope that comes in the future, but he's seeking it now. This is why he's saying, follow me, imitate me, do what I do, because I'm not just waiting for this thing that's gonna come when Christ returns. Like his, this kingdom of God has been enacted in this world right now. And I'm seeking after this restoration, both personally, as well as wherever I am. Another British pastor kind of put it like this. He says, Paul's inviting us to live out our future. He says, this is what I'm going for. This is what I'm after. Now, when we talk about living a life worthy of the gospel, we touch on the aspects of the personal side of this, the living differently and living from approval, not for approval. Tonight, I want to get more into the, the granular of what this looks like to live out in our society. All right? So whenever we receive Christ, when he comes onto our life, what Paul says is that Christ took hold of him. When he comes and takes hold of your life, look, there's restoration that happens inside of you personally, but you also become an agent of restoration. 
There's not just this one-way work that God's coming and working on you. Now this work that's happening inside of you, you're now an agent of this restoration that you're to step out into society. This is what, what Jesus is talking about when he says you're the salt and the light of the earth. He's saying you are an agent of restoration. This work that's happening inside of you, it's not just for you. You're to go out and do it as well. This is what Luther says, that God doesn't need your works, but your neighbor does. They need your act in the, as an agent of restoration. Look, what happens when you give your life to Jesus and the gospel takes root in your life, it changes you. Now look, changed people change people in places. Changed people change people in places, not because of what you do, but because of the work of Christ that's happening through you, an agent of this restoration. And we see this in Paul's life and ministry, all right? So wherever Paul goes, you see that there's this work that's happening in his life, but wherever he goes, there seems to be some form of restoration that's happening, all right? One of the best examples that you can get is whenever he's in Ephesus, in Acts chapter 19, Paul goes to visit Ephesus and he begins sharing the gospel and the gospel is just, it's exploding throughout all the city. All right, people are, there's dramatic life change that's happening. You have people that were doing these like demon worship that are going and they're laying down their idols. It's affecting the way that like even manufacturing is happening in the life of the city. Causes a riot. People are giving over books of sorcery and they're laying them down, they're selling them and then they burn all of them. Like there's restoration that's happening all over the place. Paul's not just experiencing this restoration internally and personally, but as he's going out and sharing the gospel and as he's going out and stepping into society, this restoration that's happening inside of him is also taking root in the society that he's in. And look, the same thing is to happen through you and me. If we are receiving this work of Christ in our life, if he's restoring us and making us new day after day, not only are we to experience this, but those neighbors that are around us, those people are, that are around us, are to experience this restoration as well. It's not something that we get to keep for ourselves, but Christ makes us a new creation in order for us to step in and see those that are around us, our society that we're placed in, to also experience this similar restoration. So think about this. At the moment of your faith in Christ, why didn't God just teleport you to heaven? Why didn't he just like, like, like beam me up, Scotty, like take you straight up to heaven, right? Like why, why wasn't this the case? Because he had plans for you. He had plans for you. If he just beams you up as soon as you come to faith, like how's the gospel get out? Like, God's not dependent on you. Yeah, he could go and do it, but he's chosen to use you. He says, I I've made you a new creation and look, now I brought you in and now you're a part of my bigger plan. I I've done a good work inside of you, but look, the work that you have now is restoration. Literally, God is the one that owns all things. 
Sin has permeated our society. Everything has fallen away. Nothing is as it should be. And now what God is doing, look, through you and me, is he's made us agents of restoration where we are now saying, that's yours, God. That's yours. That neighbor of mine is yours. The, the workplace that I'm in, those people that fill those seats, that's yours. The society that's, uh, that I'm in, these broken systems and structures, that is yours. My neighborhood, my school, these are things that are God's. There's nothing that God can't declare as mine. And God looks out over everything. And he's saying, hey, here's my plan. I'm restoring you internally, yes. The hope of your restoration is going to be met in full when Jesus comes again. But look, in the period between then and now, my agent of restoration is you. I'm going to change societies by using my people that are embodied in certain places in order for my gospel, my kingdom to go in advance. That's his plan. And it's a joy, it's a privilege for us to step into this, all right? So there's this Celtic tradition that's called thin places, all right? It's this belief that there are certain places in the world where the curtain between heaven and earth seems almost transparent, all right? Another way of saying it, the distance between heaven and earth collapses and we're able to catch glimpses of the divine if you go and like step into these certain places. Now, we are, the, we are the people that worship by the Spirit, all right? So there's not any particular places that we would declare that we go to and then we get a glimpse into heaven. We are the people that get to worship wherever. We get to meet with God wherever. This is, this is not like a tradition that I'm saying we need to own, but here's what I am saying, all right? As agents of restoration, this curtain should seem thin between the kingdom of light and the darkness, look, in the spaces that you and I occupy. The, the curtain that seems so thick. Look, I, I feel it in our city. I feel this. Like, all the work that was going towards us getting our church launched and starting services, it felt like there's this dark cloud. This work that we're trying to do where we're starting a church that's a group of people, not just like a service that we planted, but a group of people that are coming around, stepping into society and seeking to be these agents of change. It felt like there was this dark cloud over the city, this constant pushback to what we're trying to get moving forward. And look, as we are a church, as we're a people, as we grow and we live in and we lean into community with one another, as we go out and try to get the gospel out, look, the places and the spaces, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, our schools, the, the curtain shouldn't seem so thick. The longer that we're there and the longer that our witness moves forward, the longer that the restoration that's happened inside of you is put on display before other people, it should almost feel like the curtain's transparent and they're getting a glimpse into heaven. That restoration is taking place in the spaces that you occupy. So look, here, let, let's, let's get really down to the nitty gritty, all right? There, there's like five dimensions that all of us occupy. All right, I want you to think on these with me. All right, so here's the first one, location. It's where you live. All right, this is your neighborhoods, this is your streets. That's the first dimension that all of us occupy. The second one is this, vocation, where you work. All right, we have doctors, we have teachers, we have students, we have scientists, we have brokers, we have accountants that are all in this room. 
There's a lot of spaces that we occupy. Recreation, where you play, where you go to work out, your gym, where you go and have fun, where you ride your bike, the park, the restaurants that you regular, the coffee shops that you regular, the places of recreation. Fourth, restoration, where there's need. The Bible would declare this as like orphans and widows or the marginalized in our society. Like we step into these places. The last one is multiplication, the next generation. Thinking about our children and our students. These are all places and spaces that we occupy. Now look, here's my question for you, all right? Two application questions. What would it look like for your dimensions, my dimensions to be restored? Like I don't need an audible answer, but like, I want you to think about this this week. Think about these dimensions that you occupy. Have a, a dream, like use your imagination. What would it look like for that curtain to seem really thin? What would restoration look like in these spaces and places that you occupy? And then here's the second question for you. After you've imagined these dimensions and imagined what this curtain would look like if it was really thin, the the curtain between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, then what's my next step? What's my next step? I'm an agent of restoration. Like God has kept me here. He's making me. He's renewing me. He's going to bring me all the way home. But look, he has me here. He has a plan for me. I'm an agent of restoration. So as I think about these dimensions, what's my first step? What does it look like for me to embody being this agent of restoration? And look, it may take courage. Your first step, it may seem scary. The beauty of it is, is you have God who lives with you, who's going with you. So look, as you step out and you live into this being an agent of change, the power of the Holy Spirit is going to be on you, okay? It is. It seems scary. It's going to be weird. Sometimes it's going to be awkward. Who cares? Like, step into it. He, He will embolden you. He will give you the courage. And look, he'll use you. He's working in you, and he's going to use you and work through you. So be the agent of change, all right? Paul is saying this, join in imitating me. As I live out my future, join me. Look, change people, change people and places. So look, where and how? Where am I to go and then what is my first step, all right? So this can be kind of exciting, like thinking about it. Like, okay, I get to go and imagine. I get to like think of all these places and spaces and how God can use me in all these different spots. But yet, look, we lose sight of this vision so quickly, all right? Like, we can get excited and we can talk about it right now, but as soon as we walk out this door, like, boom, like, life hits us. And it feels like we kind of get back into the normal rhythms. Paul addresses this in the next section, all right? Here's what he tells us to do. He says to live with the end in mind. Live with the end in mind. We see this in verses 18 through 21. It says, For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many, lie, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ, Look at this. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. And they are focused on earthly things. Here's the contrast. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly wait for a savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ. 
He will transform the body of our humble condition to the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. So look, Paul has just encouraged us to join in imitating him. Live, live out your future here with me. And now he's thinking about those that have rejected this invitation that he's extended to them. This isn't the first time that he's ever extended the invitation to join me in imitating me and living out the faith, this, this um, being an agent of restoration. This isn't the first time that you see this. He, he has mind, he has people in mind. He has names that are on his heart that he's thinking about, that he's bringing up as tears are like in his eyes. He's saying they live as enemies of the cross. He gives like a number of different examples of what this means, that their God is their stomach, literally mean that they are controlled by the cravings of their flesh, that the gospel didn't take root of their heart, that they continue to walk after these things that the flesh desired. Jesus wasn't their ultimate desire, but the the cravings of their own flesh took over. It says their glory is their shame. The very things that they're proud about are the very things that make God ashamed that they focused on earthly things. They cared more about the present than they did the uh, eternal hope that they have in Christ Jesus. And look, Paul says their end is destruction. And we get the contrast that not those that are citizens of heaven, all right? They eagerly wait the return of Christ. Eagerly here means like eternity fills their minds. This is what they think about. This is what floods their minds. This is what their mind goes to is they're daydreaming about things in the present world. He says their end is restoration, that they get these resurrected bodies, that these humble conditions that they're in will be put into states of glory, the very state of glory that Jesus is in right now because he's in the resurrected body. Like he's saying, all these things are going to happen. It's going to happen because of the power of Jesus as he's putting everything under his own feet. And so look, what he's saying is Paul, Paul is issuing us another warning here that we shouldn't be like those that have become enemies of the cross and he's saying that we should live with the end in mind. That's why he gives the alternate there, that our, our citizenship is in heaven. For those of us that live with this end in mind, that this restoration is coming, that Christ is going to come back, that he is going to make all things new. And that includes a new body for you. He's saying those people are... Th- the, the struggle and the temptation for us is that the world is going to come at us and it seems it's going to come at us and it's going to, as soon as we walk out this place, that these, these thoughts about being agents of restoration and these things, these passions of the flesh, they're going to take over at times. He's saying, don't be like that. He said, have the bigger vision in mind. Live with the end in mind here. Now, look, we all struggle with this. Every single person that's sitting in a seat right now, we all struggle with this living with the end in mind, all right? It's, we, our boy, we had four little boys, um, and so there's a lot of voices in our house. <laughs> um, all of them eight and under, there are a lot of voices. And so um, we, my wife and I, we, we're constantly just trying to determine whose voice is what, you know? Like, there's all these things. Mom, Dad, I need you for this. And then we're, like, running up and down stairs and trying to figure out what's going on with kids. Well, in the midst of all of that, we have our third child, Sawyer, um, he just makes life happen for himself, right? So, like, he just, like, goes and, like, he doesn't ask. He doesn't, he just goes and does. Like, he, I want a snack. I'm going to go get a snack. He doesn't ask for permission. He just goes and does it. Like, he wants to go and paint something. He's, like, going to go get some paint. He's going to paint a wall. He's not going to ask for permission. He's just going to go do it. Like, this is who our Sutton is, or our Sawyer is, all right? And so, look, my wife and I, 
We have, we, the voice that is loudest gets our gaze in our home. And then the voice that's quietest gets our glance. Which is why Sawyer just, just kind of learned this. He's figured it out. And he's like, I'm going to go make life happen on my own. He's, he, he realizes if I don't bring up my voice, if I don't ask, then I'll just go do. The voice that's loudest in our home gets our gaze, and the one that's quietest gets our glance. Now look, the world is the constant loud voice in our life. It's the thing that seems at the very present, at the fingertips, that's always trying to seek out our attention. That's why Paul says the cravings of our flesh, the, the physical pleasure, the food, the entertainment, the things that like we, our body just want and crave, the forms of pride, like the things that saturate our minds, like our body image or our bank account or our social circles, the earthly things, the American dream that's been placed before us of trying to go get the job and the family and the, the, the job and the leisure and like all these different things. These are the things that are the loud voice in our life. These are the things that are that are coming at us and often our gazes are on these earthly things and our glance is on the eternal things. And so Paul is trying to like grab us by the shoulder and kind of like shake us a little bit. Like, hey, here's, here's the two options. The enemy of the cross, it ends in destruction. The citizen of heaven, it's restoration. It's hope. Live with the end in mind. Don't let the loudest voice get your gaze, but keep your mind on the end goal. Like, let that get your gaze, your gaze, and then the earthly things get your glance, all right? Now, like, consider how silly it is that the, the loudest thing, the, the earthly things get our gaze over the eternal things, which get our glance, all right? There's, there's a pastor that has this illustration. I'm sure many of you have seen it. Um, he gets this long white rope that goes all throughout the whole entire auditorium. It goes out the door. It goes around the corners, just this whole thing. It, it's to symbolize eternity. And so he stands in the pulpit. And as he's standing in the pulpit, the tip is red. And what he's trying to relate to, try to give a visual image of, is the white rope is eternity and the red tip is just this life. And what he's trying to grip you with is, look how silly it is that all of our thought and all of our attention and all of our work and all of our effort goes towards this little red tip. It gets all, it occupies our mind when you have this white eternity that goes all throughout the auditorium. It goes around the corner. Like Paul's saying, wake up. Don't let your, your gaze be set on this red tip. Look at all of the white. You have all of eternity. Don't throw it all away for the, just, just the red tip. Live with the end in mind. Now, he's saying, like, don't be short-sighted. Like, have the long-term vision in mind. Like, I, I want not just for me to be there with Jesus. I want to see you there with Jesus when all things are made new, when everything is restored. So look, here's my questions for you. All right, here's my two questions. Is the, the world 
and all the earthly things, they have the loudest voice that is constantly before us. Hey, you need to do this. Go, go do this. Put your life towards this. Use your money on this said thing. Go for the big house. Go for the big family. Go for the, 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 uh, the promotion at your work. Go for the big degrees. Go move across and go after the big places. Go get the job in the sky riser. Like he, as the world is screaming at us with all of these things, Paul is saying, no, look, Put your gaze on the thing that is going to give you life eternal, the very hope, the very thing that you want so desperately, which is to be restored, to be made whole, to be made full. Like, go after that. Let that in mean be the thing that you go and you live for. He's trying to shake you. So look, here's the question for you, all right? Where am I gazing where I should be glancing? Where am I gazing where I should be glancing? What's the loudest voice in your life right now that's causing a gaze to be fixated on it whenever it should just be getting your glance? And then where am I glancing where I should be gazing? Where am I glancing where I should be gazing? Hey, look, Jesus is doing things all around you. He's doing things all around. There's opportunities for you to be this agent of restoration all around you. And oftentimes we miss it because our gaze is set on the earthly things and we give a glance at the, the eternal things that are happening around us. Paul's saying, live with the end in mind. Where, where is your gaze? Is it on the earthly things or is it on the eternal things? Live with the end in mind. So not, not only are you to not sit idly and wait for restoration. You're to seek it out now because that's the hope that we have. It's this kingdom that's already come. We, we get to see this work take place. We get to be these agents of change. And then look, don't glance at eternity, but set your gaze on it and live with the end in mind, all right? And then this is the third movement. It says, in light of the hope of the restoration, we stand firm. We stand firm. Verse, chapter four, verse one. So then my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown in this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Look, to conclude this passage, Paul says, in light of the hope of the restoration, look, you stand firm. You put your feet in cement in the hope of this restoration that we find in the gospel of Jesus. So he's saying, don't give up, stick with it, endure, don't abandon the faith. Now, this is easier than it sounds. Stand firm, two words, sounds like, okay, yeah, like, let's do this. I'm gonna stand firm. But we live in a world that's marred by sin. And we don't need any reminders about this. It's always before us. I mean, you turn on the news and you have constant reminders of all the crime that's happening in our city. You get on your social media feed and you're, you're, you have people that are asking for prayer for people that have had cancer diagnoses or they've gotten COVID or there's been deaths in their family. And then you have your own body that's overcome with stress and anxiety. Like you don't need reminders that our sin, the, sin has marred the world that we live in. And on top of this, we're also told by the Bible and we experience this in our life as well, that Satan is a prowling, a prowling around like a lion and he's attacking at our vulnerabilities. So he tempts us in the areas that he knows where we're weak. So he comes after our patience. He comes after our self-control. He comes after our mouths. He comes after our relationships. He, he knows where we're weak, and he tempts us in these areas. Then he attacks our identity in Christ when we sin and fall and fail in these things. Hey, there's no way that you can be a disciple of Jesus. There's no way you can be a child of God if you're doing this. Uh, didn't you do this just last week? 
Like, how can that be said of a child of God? Like, this can't be true. This can't be you. you. There's no way that you can measure up. And then he is this constant reminder of our past. And so there's just this constant living in a, a posture of shame. It's like, oh my gosh, I, yeah, that thing that I did way back, there's no way that I could get forgiveness for that. This is who I am. I'm just, there's no way that that could ever be overcome. Like, this is what Satan does. So we have these constant reminders of the way that sin has marred and broken our world. We feel it in our own bodies. Then we have the evil one that's attacking us in the most weak, vulnerable places in our lives. So like, how are we to do this? How are we to stand firm? Look, Paul doesn't advise us to stand firm in our own strength. There's three words that are really important after he calls us to stand firm. He says that we're to stand firm in the Lord. What does this mean? Like, uh, I think it sounds kind of daunting in our head of like, we talked last week about Christianity and, about how we have to add things to the gospel. And I think this is one of those places that we begin to play that out. It's like, okay, yes, I need the gospel, I need Jesus, but then what's the thing that helps me stand firm? What's the thing I've got to go do? Like, is it sharing the gospel with my friend? Is it like stepping in and like having courage? What are the things that get me to have this power to stand firm? And we, we add these things to the gospel and we make it a lot more daunting than what I think Paul is trying to get in our head. Here's what he's trying to say, all right? He's saying, it means that when you are tempted, you pray for the power of the Spirit. That, that's standing firm. When Satan attacks your vulnerabilities and you see it coming, you, you pray and you pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would be present in your life that you would not fall into said sin. And then on top of that, it means that when you have sinned and when you have failed, that you preach the gospel of grace to yourself over and over and over again. That's standing firm. That's what it means. It means that you don't go to despair whenever you've fallen short again. There's no way that God could give me, forgive me for the 478th time about this sin. No, that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying, no, you do the same thing that brought you into salvation at the very beginning. This gospel of grace is the thing that you rehearse over and over and over again in your mind. And whenever you see these things coming for you in the future again, as you see these temptations coming for you, he says, you pray for the power of the Spirit in your life. That's standing firm, that you don't give up, but you keep going, that you continue to do the things that God has called you to do in your life as a Christian. You don't give up on it. This is what standing firm looks like. All right, so here's another way of saying it, all right? Um, we, my, my wife and I, we took our family to the beach a few years ago. Um, this is when Seth was really young, and so he's, he's trying to, we're trying to get him over a little bit of a fear of the water, and so I take him out into the water. He's got like his life vest and his floaties. Like, there's no way this kid's going to drown. You know what I'm saying? So I take him out, and we're, we're trying to get him in the waves and trying to bounce him out. Now, so we get out there. He's scared. He's scared stiff. He's like holding on to me really, really tight at first. Um, he's afraid that he's going to drown because his feet Aren't the, one, aren't the ones that are touching the ground. But I take him out, and as he's out there, he's enjoying it. He learns to enjoy the waves. So we're jumping up and down in the waves. We're enjoying all this. We're trying to, like, ride some of the waves in. He's enjoying all this. Now, look, the reason that he's okay is he's standing firm. But is it his feet that are on the ground? No. It's, it's me, the one who's bigger the one who's stronger, the one who's been in the waves, the one that knows what it's like, the one whose feet are firmly on the ground. 
And Paul is saying, look, that's what we put our hope in. When you stand firm, you're not putting your faith in your feet that are touching the ground. No, you have your feet that are on the solid rock, which is Jesus. And so whenever the temptation comes, you pray to the spirit who lives inside of you. You're, you come to him and he's the one that puts his arms around you in the midst of the waves. And whenever you have failed and you've fallen short and the wave seems to be taking you over, you put your hope in the gospel of Jesus, this gospel of grace, and you continue to preach, yes, I've fallen short, but Jesus has done everything for me. He's my two feet that are on the ground. I'm, I can't go anywhere else. This is my hope. This is what Paul is saying. This is what standing firm looks like. So look, here's my question for you, all right? Where am I weak and where am I prone to waver? in my life? This is my application question, all right? Where am I weak and where am I prone to waver? All right, so one of the things, one of the means to standing firm in is, growing, is a growing awareness in your life of your vulnerabilities, all right? You need to know where you're weak. Satan, he knows, he studies you. He looks at your life, he watches you. And he knows where to attack you. So look, if you are going to stand firm and you're going to preemptively pray for the power of the Spirit over you as you're living into this life, you need to know where you're weak. You need to know where you're prone to waver, where the, the ground feels very like faulty bef- below you. Like, where is that in your life? Look, what areas have been a struggle for you in your life in the past? Who have you shared this with? Like, the way that you can kind of help find some solid ground, the way that you can lock arms, the partnership that we're talking about in this gospel, getting the gospel deep down inside of you is you find and you share these things with other people in your life so they can come alongside of you and be a strength and a support for you. And then are you regularly praying for the power of God in this struggle in your life? Like you need to know. Grow in your awareness of like, where are these places of weakness in my life? All right, let's, let's conclude with this. All right, so in Matthew 11, John the Baptist sends his disciples to Jesus to pose the question to Jesus. He says this, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Here's what's going on in John's life. John has been arrested, he's in jail, and death is looming. So the very one that God has ordained to prepare the way for Jesus is questioning, he's doubting, he's wavering. And so he sends his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the one or is there someone else? Now, do you remember Jesus' response? Here it is. It should be on the screen. Jesus replied to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. Look at this, y'all. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those with leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, look, the dead are raised and the poor are told the good news. Jesus' response to John is examples of restoration that he has enacted here in this world. Jesus' response is, John, I'm the one who has come to make all things new. I'm the one that's returning things to the right place order and condition. I'm the one that's going to deliver all these things to its rightful owner. And he's speaking it to you and me as well. This is our hope. There is no other. So don't idly wait for this restoration. 
Live your future and be an agent of restoration. Don't glance at eternity, but set your gaze on it and live with the end in mind. And then look, stand firm, brothers and sisters. Stand firm. Let's pray.